Father, we've just sung that we welcome you here. You are welcome here. Lord, that is the cry of our hearts. Be welcome here. And I just want to ask, Lord, that you would speak through these words tonight, that you'd breathe your life into them. Lord, that you would take us deeper into you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I find the book of Revelation very challenging. <laughs> so when I'm asked to preach in Revelation, part of me goes, because ah! it's not, it's so, it's so unlike the rest of the Bible, I think, the book of Revelation. And it's quite difficult, I think, sometimes to get our heads around what is going on. Now, the passage I've got tonight, let's start by reading it. It's Revelation 21, 1 to 8, which hopefully will appear... There we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Nice first to finish on. <laughs> I like it. It's all really lovely and amazing, and then we finish with that, but we'll come to that in a minute. So... Um, in a way, there aren't, there aren't really many other bits of the Bible that kind of talk about eternity in the way the book of Revelation does. It kind of stands on its own, I think. And so I've had, I've had to, I spent most of yesterday trying to read around this because um, some of the imagery, it just speaks of things that are so unfamiliar to us, such difficult things to get our heads around. And the, the chapter, this, these, these eight verses that we're looking at tonight in chapter 21 immediately follow on from the, the final judgment in chapter 20. And, and, it, and we, we've seen that it starts with, with John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. So verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I think what John is seeing here is the fulfilment of a promise that actually God's already expressed through other verses in Scripture, which is quite interesting. And, and until yesterday, I don't think I'd quite realised exactly where this appears. If you 
Can we get Isaiah 65, verse 17, the first half of verse 17 in Isaiah 65? Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. It's the same, isn't it? It's the new heaven and the new earth. And then again in, in Isaiah 66, 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. So, so this bit of revelation is actually, in a sense, n- not brand new because it's already been prophesied about by Isaiah. And then in, if we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, we've got, I want to look at verses 10 and, verses, and verse 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And I think it's really interesting. So this promise that God has made us of a new heaven and a new earth is actually repeated. And I don't think I'd realise that. I, I kind of had, but actually I hadn't, you know. And, and for the promise to be fulfilled of the new heaven and the new earth, what this, this passage is telling us and what these other passages tell us is that the old first has to pass away. And that means that the, the earth we live on and the physical heavens all around us, they're not going into eternity with us. I was like, when I read that, I'm like, oh. Because <laughs> somehow I think it's su- such a difficult concept that we almost think that somehow our earth and heavens are going to be renewed or restored. But actually the Bible's very clear that that's not the case. Passing away, which is the language, means exactly that. In the same way that we talk about loved ones passing away. Our current earth and the heavens will pass away. Our earth is not designed to be eternal. Jesus, Jesus himself says so. If you look at Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says it as well. These are the words of Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so the new heaven and the new earth is a completely different place, a completely different realm. And just because, just because our earth where we are right now is not going to be eternal doesn't, doesn't mean that we, we've got carte blanche to mistreat our environment, even though in many ways we do. And it doesn't mean we should not worry about using up all its resources. But it does mean that God is creating a brand new place for us to inhabit. And clearly it's not going to be the same as our current one. One of the things that I noticed was it says that there will no longer be any sea. So it's not going to be something that that looks like this even. That may be a disappointment to those of us who love the sea, but I'm sure it won't be when we get there. There will be water. The Bible talks about the, the, the streams flowing from the throne of God, from which we can drink. So, so there will be water, but I, I find it quite hard to get my head around because it's so, it's so different, I think, to what we know and what we've experienced already. 
And then even more confusing, in verse 2, John talks about his vision of the, the new Jerusalem, the, the holy city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I, I can't even imagine what it looks like to see a city descending, if I'm really honest. And when I read this, I just thought, how can you compare a city with a bride? It, to me, it feels like a, a weird kind of comparison. But actually, what I think John is expressing and trying to express is his, his sense of beauty at what he's seeing. I don't know about you, but I, I can't think of any wedding I've ever been to where you don't say, oh, the bride is so beautiful. Brides are beautiful, aren't they? But, but they just are. And it's a beautiful moment when the, the groom looks round and sees his bride coming down the aisle. And it's actually, it's just as lovely to watch the expression on the groom's face, isn't it? And, and I think somehow that's what John is trying to express. The radiance, the beauty, just his heart enraptured with the beauty of what he's seeing. Now, I can't think of a, a city that, that's like that, but I think in his vision, it's something so incredible, so beautiful, so radiant. And that's why I think he's comparing it to a, to a bride. Because what the new Jerusalem is going to be is everything that the old Jerusalem never was. What do, I, what do I mean by that? If you've, if you've ever been, have any of you ever been to Jerusalem? Apart from me and Laurie. <laughs> yeah, a couple of us. It is an amazing city. It's a fascinating place to wander around. And I loved it when I was there years and years ago. But it's also a place that has seen a lot of violence and bloodshed. The old Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says... O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So there's something deeply, inherently sinful and broken about the old Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is not going to be like that. And of course, the the worst crime ever committed in the whole of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus, the crucifixion of the Son of God, took place just outside the city walls. And so the, Jerus the new Jerusalem has none of that. The new Jerusalem is as God intends. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And by contrast, it's going to be a place of God's presence. That's what's really clear. In, in verse 3 of Revelation 21, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the new Jerusalem, I, I think what John is saying, is a place where we will dwell with God. It's a place of his eternal, constant presence. And we'll be there with him. I mean, it's extraordinary. Extraordinary. 
in, in the New Jerusalem, I read, I read something yesterday that said, in the New Jerusalem, we won't need to live by faith. Because, because faith is the thing that enables us to take hold of the things not yet seen. Faith, faith sees that which we don't yet have, but which we believe for. It's faith that enables us to use the, the proper word, to appropriate the things of the kingdom. But in the New Jerusalem, it'll just be there. We'll be in it. <laughs> we can, we'll be able to see it. We'll inhabit it. So we won't be living by faith in the way that we will now. And of course, yes, we know we come into God's presence here and now, but there are times when we just don't feel it at all. I think the new Jerusalem is just going to be so, so different. I mean, that's kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? But it's the place of God's dwelling. And in that place, we will have fullness all the time. Now, I know we have the fullness of Christ. We teach that on living in freedom. We've been given everything we need to live a life like Jesus. But we still sin. We still fall short. We still make bad choices. In the new Jerusalem, we will, we will, we will be in God completely all the time. And it's, it's a hard concept to grasp, I think. And most of Revelation is quite a hard concept to grasp. But it's a place where we will be joined with God in a way that we just can't imagine at the moment. And the church, that, that's us, the bride of Christ will be one with the bridegroom. That's that, that wedding imagery. And yes, we are one with Christ today. Laurie was talking this morning about how we have been given the righteousness of God. We have been made holy, but we don't live holy day to day, and we all know that. In the new Jerusalem, we will be in that place of constant communion in God's eternal presence. And it is hard to grasp. And, and I think a verse that is really helpful with this is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. I think this is just, this is just brilliant. Paul says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. I think what mirrors were like in those days when Paul was writing. They weren't clear like our mirrors today. But then we shall see face to face. Now I, know, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's what John is seeing and what he's trying to describe. We'll be in this place where actually it won't be like looking at a poor reflection at all. We will just be there in the presence of God. And we will know him fully. All those questions that we have at the moment will just be answered. There won't be those questions anymore. In the same way that God knows us fully now, we shall know him. I mean, that, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. If you're anything like me, the, the more you go on in your relationship with God and in your life as a Christian, the more you realise you don't know. <laughs> And God is so much more vast and infinite. And even those words just don't really express it. He's so much bigger than our finite human minds can take hold of. And yet, in the new place, 
in the new creation, in the new heaven and the new earth, all of that, we'll just know it. It will just be complete. And I, I just don't think our, our language just does justice to, to what this is going to be like. We'll, we'll know God perfectly. I mean, it's extraordinary. And God sees all things perfectly now, but there is a, a time coming when we also will see things perfectly and clearly. And verse 4 of Revelation 21 is also just beautiful. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I love the tenderness of that language because it speaks of God who is so personal and compassionate. If someone else wipes your tears when you're crying, that's an incredibly tender and intimate thing. Some of us would go, oh, because be, it's too close and too personal. But that intimacy is just amazing. And, and that's what ultimately victory looks like. No pain, no sorrow, no death. Because all of that is part of the old order of things that will pass away. The Bible is so clear on that. And again, it's, it's really hard to, to understand a world in which there is no pain, no tears, no sorrow. Because it's part of the human condition. It's part of, it's part of life. Things can upset us every single day, even tiny little things. Big things, small things. But I, I doubt any of us go through a whole day where we've been 100% full of joy all day. So again, it's hard to comprehend what it's going to be like. But it's a promise. It's a, this is the place we're going to. It's guaranteed, every single one of us. It's interesting, isn't it? I think I've heard politicians use the phrase new world order when they try to usher in a new political party or, or whatever. But no politician will ever be able to usher in a new world order because it's only possible with a brand new world. And only God can do that. But that is what's going to happen. When I was, when I was prepping this yesterday, I, I was reading up because, as I say, it's quite, it's quite a tricky passage to preach on, really. And I, I came across this idea that likened this new world that God is creating, and bear with me, to the breaking of the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> I'm quite glad he's not here because I'm probably going to be spouting scientific heresy. But, but it's really interesting because my, I think the gist of it is that all matter is in a constant state of deterioration and has been since the very beginning. That, I think, is 
the second law of thermodynamics. If there's any scientists here, you can correct me, and that's absolutely fine, because this is internet knowledge, which is really dodgy ground, and I'm aware of that. However, I think it's very interesting, because we know our current world is wearing out. It's in no doubt. Whatever your views on the environment and global warming and everything else, we know that stuff in this world does not last forever. And this world is not going to last forever. But that's not going to be the case in eternity. So, so all matter is in this state of deterioration. But in the new earth and the new heaven, nothing will ever deteriorate or, work out, or, or wear out. Now, I've got a visual aid for this, just bear with me, you might think this is really pathetic, but when I was little, when I was really little, I had a favourite pink teddy bear, absolutely adored this pink teddy bear, and I loved it so much that he ended up like this, I've still got it, I went up in the loft to get it tonight, he's worn out, because stuff doesn't last forever. And my mum nicknamed him Mopped, which stands for mangy old pink thing. <laughs> Things wear out. But in the new heaven and the new earth, I mean, I'm not sure there's going to be teddy bears, but you know what I mean? He'd still be pink and fluffy. So I just think it's a really interesting thing that in eternity, nothing will age in that way. Nothing will deteriorate. So there you go. Second law of thermodynamics, mangy teddy bear, revelation. <laughs> verse 5, let's go on to verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And what I think is interesting about this verse is that it's a present tense statement. I am making. I am making everything new. Not I'm going to, and not I have. But I am making everything new. And that says to me that the work of creating, the work of recreating, is, is happening now. It's... We're in it. And, and I, would, I want to say to you that I think the work of God's creation doesn't stop. God is a creator God. And you and I are new creations in the midst of the old creation. And, and I think what that means is that we literally carry within us as new creations a taste of the new earth. The place where there is no sickness. The place where there are no tears. The place where there is no sorrow. And I think the fact that we are new creations reveals something of the life and the power and the presence of God. Because we have been made new. We've been looking at... Um, at 2 Corinthians in, on, in the mornings. And, and we all know that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, 
the new has come. And again, I think that's it's something that we know, but I think it's difficult to grasp the absolute enormity of that statement. Because we look at ourselves and we see us getting older and things start to creak and, and hair starts to go grey and all of that stuff. But actually, we are also eternal beings. God has made us to be eternal beings. So we carry, we carry the newness of the new heaven, the new earth within us. I can't explain it, but I know it's true. The Bible says it's true. And that is how, I think that's how we know 100% that we will be present in the new heaven and the new earth. Because we're, all re- we're sort of already in it, but we're not. We are, but we're not. <laughs> it's one of those. But every time a new believer is born again, that's God creating right there. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. And so you and I are designed to point people to Jesus and eternity and to bring people with us into the new place because we are new creations. We're designed to do that. God has made us new. And I love that, that, that at the end of verse 5 in Revelation 21 says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I mean, that says to me, this is really important. <laughs> write it down. These words are trustworthy and true. I mean, everything God says is trustworthy and true, but the command to write it down, there's real emphasis there, which is why I think it's, it, this is really important that we do try to understand the privilege of being born again and the enormity of what we carry. To be new creations in the midst of the old to point people to the eternal Jesus. And then let's go to verse 6, Revelation 21, verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Again, I can't make a deep theological point about this because I don't quite know how to explain or understand what it means that He is the Alpha and the Omega, other than that he is the eternal God, eternally present. And the idea of beginnings and endings, that's that's a theme which is quite common throughout scripture. But the most important thing is we don't lose sight of the person of Jesus, because that's what this is pointing to. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. It's all about Jesus. And I love that it says, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. In other words, God promises to supply all that we need. 
that, that the, the idea of drinking and water of life and being thirsty, that those kinds of um, analogies for being representing our need of God, they're, they're often mentioned in scripture. David talks about his soul thirsting after God like a deer panting for the water. It's, it's not an unusual image, but the promise in this is, is amazing. What this is saying is that there is not a single need we could ever have that God doesn't supply or, and hasn't supplied. There's not a single need we could ever have that is not met in God. That's what that's saying. And it's free. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And I think so often we get anxious about, about our needs. I need such and such. Where is it going to come from? We, I do this, get anxious about how we're going to make ends meet. Where's the money going to come from? Where's this going to come from? How am I going to do, how am I going to meet that need? And we get kind of caught up in fear when it comes to need. And yet God is promising that he will meet every need we could ever, ever have. And the problem comes because we sin. And when we sin, we... We end up attempting to meet our needs ourselves and not trusting in God, either in our own strength or even through sort of illegitimate means. If we're not looking to God and trying to do it all ourselves, we get very muscular and very uptight about it. And then we won't necessarily, we will find that our needs are not met because we're looking in the wrong place. We're not looking to God to meet our needs. But in God, there is... There is a legitimate supply to satisfy every single need that we have or could ever have. And, and verse 7, I think, is the confirmation of that. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son That's an awful lot to inherit. <laughs> all this. All this. Everything that John is describing. Being part of the new Jerusalem. Being, being inhabitants of the new earth and the new heavens. That's part of our inheritance. We have this extraordinary inheritance as God's children. It's... It's, it's far too big to even begin to understand in some ways. But all this, it's ours. Because we're God's children. So everything that belongs to God belongs to us. That's what that's actually saying. What a privilege to be a child of God. And in a way, I would really like to stop there because that's all the good stuff. But I've been given verse 8 as well. <laughs> so, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. 
strong stuff. Strong stuff. And I don't want to say too much about it because I want us to kind of just know who we are and what we've been given. But I think there's a couple of points that it, it's worth making. That first word, cowardly, is interesting. I don't think it just means timid, which is how we understand it. It means, I think, those who are almost too afraid, to, uh, not willing to, to confess Jesus. It's pointing to those who are like, well, no, I'm not going to be a Christian. I think. That's, that's what I think. And the unbelieving are not those who don't understand, but those who have chosen not to believe. And that's the fundamental difference. And it's a huge difference. It's, this is not a, a comprehensive list of sins which exclude. That's not what this is about. Rather, it's, a, I think, a description of the lifestyle that characterises those who reject Jesus. So it's not saying, if you're a murderer, if you're sexually immoral, if you practice magic, if you lie, then you're not going to get into heaven. And that, that, that's how we read that. This is, this is not that. It's just, this is about either receiving Jesus or choosing not to. It's, it's, a, it's a description of those who have chosen to live in the darkness instead of coming into the light. And in that context, I think cowardly is quite an interesting word because sometimes... You have to be very courageous when you step into the light. Because, one, you're just exposed. God sees everything. Your sin is exposed. Two, you're no longer in charge of your own life if we surrender to God. It takes courage and boldness to become a Christian. Some people, some people get kicked out of their families. Some people are persecuted when they come to Christ. And so I understand in that context what cowardly means. If you like, I think this, this list is more like it, listing the fruit of a life lived in separation from God. That's what that's about. It's not about comparing those who sin to those who haven't, because we all sin. The Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. We all sin. Every day. I can't... I don't think any of us can say, I've lived a perfect day. Even if we think an unkind thought. And so that's not what this is about. It's about the separation that comes from the refusal to allow God to forgive their sin. And so, in a way, the only difference between those of us who will inhabit the new earth and the new heaven from those who won't is that we've received forgiveness. We've actually been willing to give our lives over to Jesus, say, I receive your forgiveness. He was made sin for us, which is what Laurie was talking about this morning. And we then receive the righteousness of Christ. That's the fundamental difference. That's not to say we're not all on a journey of transformation. We are all being made holy. 
And hopefully next week we might be a bit holier than we were last week, <laughs> if you see what I mean. But fundamentally, every human being is alike and every human being needs Jesus. And what I want us to take away from tonight, I think, is the fact that God has done everything, everything from his point of view to make sure no one should end up in hell. In the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Ultimately, we have a choice. And that, I think, should be our motivation for telling others about the gift of forgiveness that's available to them. Because I don't want anybody I know to end up in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Because that's just unthinkable. And yet we're so afraid to talk about Jesus and I've said this before, I know I have, but do we love our friends and family so little that we're not willing to tell them? Do we value the friendship or the relationship and not upsetting the apple cart more than their eternal salvation? And that's a massive challenge and I apply that to myself as well, it's hard. It's really hard when people don't know Jesus. But God's done everything. And there's this amazing place that we are going to inhabit. And surely we want everyone there. God wants everyone there. He's paid the price for every single human being to go there. And the choice is down to us whether we accept him or not. Right, I'm going to stop there. Amen.